Oh, thank you all for being patient with us. If you have children and you want to send them to the back, you can. If you want to keep them with you, you can do that as well. Um, it's good to be back. Um, we missed you guys. We, we, uh, we just need one of you guys to get really rich and buy some place down there so we can all be together. <laughs> and we kept thinking, man, this would be so good if our family was here, you know. We thought of everybody, you know, all you guys. And uh, it's something magnificent when God links your heart to people whom when you were in the world, you wouldn't be able to stand. <laughs> and that's a work of the Lord, that you can so love someone that you know that when you were in your BC days, you probably wouldn't get along with them very well. <laughs> that's, people say, how do you know a God is real? Because I actually love people. That's how I know he's real. Because when I uh, wasn't following him, I didn't like anybody especially myself. And the fact that I can love another human being is proof of God's existence. The fact that I can think of somebody other than myself proves to me that God can work on the heart of a man so deeply that he can change who you are. There's no rhyme or reason why someone should care about somebody more than they care about themselves. It's the only the work of Christ. Amen. So uh, those of you who are new... Uh, welcome. We, uh, we don't know what we're doing, but we will one day figure it out. Until then, uh, feel free to judge us as much as you want. It won't change what we're doing. But uh, we're trying, you know. It's amazing how everybody says there's no perfect church, but then they want churches to be perfect. It's funny how that works. Uh, so we're, we, are, we have been going uh, for quite some time, if you're jumping in midstream with us, verse by verse through Ephesians. And um, we've finally made it to chapter 6, and this is the culmination of, of what most people think the book of Ephesians is about. Uh, if you ask most believers what's in the book of Ephesians, nine times out of ten, they're going to tell you of chapter 6 while having no clue what 1 through 5 state or mean. The Bible's very important in the order in which it was written, and I think sometimes we miss that and we cherry-pick verses and passages without looking at the context or the building in which the author was trying to achieve, because within the mind of a genius inspired by the Holy Spirit, you see Paul stating under the influence of the Holy Spirit that he was a wise master builder. And somebody who's a wise master builder knows the process in which a house has to be built. And if you put certain things before certain things, the whole thing fails. Anybody does contracting work, you know how many times it's very frustrating for you to be in the wrong order in the building business. <laughs> it just creates chaos and friction amongst everybody. And then when that happens, the contractors begin to pick on one another. And it's always somebody else's fault. It was the framer. It was the guy who did the foundation. Now, and the painter will fix it all. And this is what happens in the church, is that when the foundations get off and our scripture reading gets off and we don't understand the origin of the mind of Paul through the Holy Spirit, we begin to put things out of order and then we blame everybody but ourselves. 
One through five comes before six. Everybody wants spiritual warfare, but not everybody wants to live a life that can hold the weight of that kind of war. And it takes a preparatory experience to be able to understand what it means to be a warrior bride. You don't send babies into battle. This is why the church, in my opinion, has been losing so much over the last 50, 60 years. It's because predominantly our churches are filled with babies. And there's no leaders who know how to lead and fight to teach and raise people up. Why? Because we're more concerned about how many people there are in our church instead of the quality of the disciple that we're raising. You are God's resource to change this environment. Not the pastor, not the apostle or the prophet. Their job is to what? Equip you. So if things aren't changing out there, it's kind of self-revealing that you would blame the pastor when he has actually no ability to change what's out there. He has the ability to equip you to change what's out there. (laughs) We are the body of Christ, and it takes all of us to take out principalities and powers who have existed here for thousands of years unchallenged, frankly, because the church has been more concerned about making babies instead of raising the ones they make. Does this make sense to us? So Paul has a directive in Ephesians. If you haven't followed along with us, all these messages are online. You can go back and listen to them if you want. Um, Any podcast platform, you can Google Proclaiming Jesus Ministries, whatever your flavor of of social media or, or podcast, we should be on there. You can uh, find the Ephesians series on there um, and follow along with us. It's, it's quite extensive. We go verse by verse. We don't get in a hurry, right? Mm. Even today's verse, we're going to have to split in two because Paul is so deep in what he does. You can't just read the verse without understanding there's more behind what he's actually trying to say. I think it would be good for the American church when they read their Bible to slow down. Quantity means nothing. Trying to get through the Bible in a year, I'm not against it, but you miss so much when you have to read seven chapters a day. (laughs) Ephesians 6, verse 11 we understand now we've, we've been through the horizontal. Those of you who've been following along, there's so much emphasis put between one through five on how we treat one another. Why? Because the devil has no power to work in life except through people. Tell him I said hello. <laughs> he has no power to work in life except through people. And so if power comes through people, then he's going to try to gain people to influence environments, cities, regions, until he finally owns the governments, the businesses, the homes, the families, and even the churches. This is why you can walk into certain geographical atmospheres and feel different presence that that have a hold on the city. Some of them, you go to it, it's a facade of wealth and arrogance and superiority. Some places you drive through and you, you sense an overall spirit of hopelessness and poverty. 
because those things have gotten into the minds of people and people empower those principalities. And when people empower those principalities, that becomes the culture in which the church has to war. This is is making sense to you. So Paul basically says, live life together in such a way that would please Messiah Jesus. So much on the horizontal, forgive one another, bear one another's burdens. I don't have time to go back into the recap. And then he spends a a massive amount of time on marriage, family, home life. Because if, if your marriage is out of order, no man, no woman has the ability to war in principalities and powers and that has extra energy to come home and war at home. Everybody wants to command demons, but we can't even control our marriages. I say control in a, in a way I hope you understand. If we can't get the devil out of our house, what makes you think you're going to give him out to somebody else? See, they recognize authority. They don't recognize doctrine and dogma. Your doctrines of what you think the Bible means threatens nobody. If you haven't figured that out by now, you need to get with the program. Because theology is not impressive to Satan. Do you remember the time when he actually encountered the word of God himself incarnate? You're talking about God in his infinite power poured into a six foot figure roaming the earth in all of his deity and glory and sinlessness. And the enemy has the audacity to walk up to that man and quote the word of God to him. So don't think that what you think about scripture keeps you on the high and mighty. In fact, I love what happened. There was a story of Charles Spurgeon who was called the Prince of Preachers and he had a man come up to him one day and said, you know, I have a problem. He said, what's your problem? He said, there's a particular verse I don't understand and I'm concerned about it. And Charles Spurgeon said, you would be better to be concerned about the ones you think you understand. Because within the confines of your minuscule revelation, you are blind to the revealing of God outside of your context, which is going to be revealed world without end. Every little experience that you think you've had with him that gives you some sort of leg up on someone else is only touching one grain of the revelation of who God is on the eternal shores of his glory. Paul even says, what you think you know, why do you boast in it if you were given it by someone else? You don't even have what you think you own. You've been given everything. There's only one thing we boast in, and that's Messiah Jesus and his choice to make us his son and his daughter when we didn't deserve it. So we have a responsibility to the father to treat the brothers and sisters of the house as the father would treat them. You and I as believers do not have a spiritual right to be offended. If you're ever offended, that is the degree of your theology. That is the depth of your Christianity. Because Jesus was never offended by you. Let me just say it this way. If somebody has the power of offend, to offend you, then the Holy Spirit doesn't have the power to move you. If you thought you came to a church where I was going to 
fluff, fluff you up. That's <laughs> not your guy because I'm going to face the king and he scares me more than you do. I fear my father because he placed everything into this, cost him everything to start this, to be what we need to be. And I don't have the right to take it lightly. This isn't life. This is a war and a preparation for a greater world. My father's not an American. He's a dictator who at this moment is refraining from his dictatorship, but one day he will no longer refrain. And my weak opinions will melt like wax in his presence. So Paul, in his classic fashion, in verse 11, states something that most people miss and that it's a responsibility. Warfare is a responsibility. Most people get taken out by the devil because they don't operate in a legal system. I don't mean in religion. I mean legally. You and I have to understand this. The second heavens, the world in which the principality operates in is a legal system. This is why the Bible at the very end calls it the great white throne judgment. It's why it calls God a judge. It's why it uses legal terminology that, that Jesus is our advocate. He's our defense attorney. Satan is the accuser. He's the prosecutor. We are headed for a trial, one by fire. All of the spirit world works upon legal legality, which means, this is why Paul says, later on he says to other, he says, listen, don't you know that whoever you yield your, your members to, your body to, that's whose slave you are. He's talking to born-again, blood-bought, Holy Ghost-filled people. There's this modern idea that is so false that says, oh, the devil has no place in me. He does if you let him. You think that just because you're saved that he has no access to your life, that is wrong and you will find that life will prove you wrong. I have so many people, I've done this for 25 years and I've watched people get seduced into this deliverance, power, you know, warfare thing only to get their rear ends handed to them. Because they're not living life the way they should and because they're not living life the way they should, the demon has access to them. You say, oh, that's pastor, that's legalism. Exactly. <laughs> that's why the demon has access to you because you're not operating according to the legal structure of Christ. Even Jesus looks at his disciples in Luke 6 and says, why are you calling me Lord and you're not doing a thing I ask you to do? If you allow... The devil in your home. The devil can ransack your home. See, see, people say, well, that's just a bunch of legalism. No, it's called obedience. And if you think obedience is legalism, you're the one with the religious spirit. Does this make sense to you? Jesus says, if you love me, 
do what I'm telling you to do. Why? It's not because he's a legalist. It's because he knows the devil is. And if you give place to the devil, he gets room in your life. People go back to alcohol over and over and over again. And they wonder why the devil continues to ruin their life. Because you're letting him. This isn't the will of God for your life. It's something that God has honored because that's what you're choosing. It's the same thing with offense and rejection and bitterness and unbelief. If you allow those things into your heart, into your mind, guess who has a right to you? But I'm saved. All the more reason he wants you. Because the authority of a believer has a million times more impact if he gains a hold of that person than a heathen. The devil wants your power. He wants your authority because you do have it. And he wants to stop your growth process by getting you to wear something other than what Christ would wear. To dress you in a way that God himself would not dress himself. With anger and malice, covetousness and violence and offense and unbelief, and unforgiveness and bitterness, lust and hatred, defiance, judgment, criticism, self-hate, unbelief. These are all things that we put on and we robe ourselves with. And then we wonder why when we show up to the battle that the devil's like laughing at us and nothing happens. We're like, well, I prayed, nothing happened. That's because you were dressed like the demon. You went to his party to break it up, but you're wearing his costume. You're not gonna change your marriage by being bitter at your husband. You don't know what he's done. It doesn't matter what he's done. What matters is what you are able to do. See, if you look at what, if we always look at what was done to us, then we dress ourselves, we robe ourselves in a victim mentality. And Jesus was a sacrifice, but he was not a victim. And there's a difference. Some of you guys are going through life thinking you're a sacrifice, but you're developing a victim mentality. Sacrifices don't hate the one who's killing them. Victims do. Victims blame. Sacrifices cover. So Paul, can you put the verse up, please? Verse 11. Put on a part of the armor of God. Do you realize that every armor of God is an antithesis to the armor of the flesh? Do you realize there's an exact copycat for every piece of the armor that the devil offers? The devil has a sword. He has a helmet, he has a breastplate, he has a shield, but they're exactly opposite of everything that Father is. The devil's shield is pride. 
How many of you guys have ever operated in pride? Then you've operated in the armor of the enemy. The devil's breastplate is not righteousness, but religion. Works. In order to gain favor with God. The devil's shoes is not peace, it's torment and chaos. The loins are not truth, but a lie. And that's why you replicate lies when you live that way. Are you following what I'm saying? So Paul is saying, look, you have a choice here of what you're going to look like and what you're going to wear. Do you understand that your identity in Christ as a son was transformed by Jesus alone? He birthed you and adopted you. But what you wear is your choice. See, in the beginning, we didn't need clothes. It says Adam and Eve knew they were naked after they ate of the fruit. Why? Because when darkness finally comes in, it only comes in because the light had to pull away. Do you realize that the reason, one reason why they didn't realize they were naked wasn't because they were naked. They weren't naked. They were clothed the same way God was clothed. And I preached the message on this. In light and in glory. The light was so bright in them and around them and through them that they couldn't even see their nakedness. They were clothed with the glory of God. We were always meant to be clothed with what God wore. Always, because we were made in his image. We were clothed with what clothed God. It says in the Bible that he is clothed in glory and power. And we were clothed with the same thing in the beginning. But when we chose the opposite of what God intended for us, darkness came in, not because darkness overcame the light, but because light had to exit at the will of the human. Your will still has the same authority and power and opportunity as Adam and Eve did. In other words, you can let glory come and cover you or you can let darkness and shame come in. And God will honor whichever one you choose. We were always meant to be clothed, never naked. And even once they realized they were naked and the glory lifted even God, what's the first thing God did? He covered them. Because we were supposed to be covered. You understand me? We're supposed to wear what God wears. This is why it's called the armor of God. It doesn't, it's not the armor of the flesh. It's not the armor of the man. It's not the armor of the spirit. It's the armor of our father. We have been given the right to wear again, once more, what God wears. Why does he tell us to, to wear armor? We, we read that as if it's just the way it's supposed to be. It's because God is saying this. What once took you out, I'm going to give you the privilege now to defeat what's want, what once defeated you. See, he could have come and did it for us all, but he wants us in that sense, I say this lightly, to extract revenge upon his greatest foe. He wants his weakest creation to defeat his greatest enemy. And so he says, you can't do it unless you wear my armor. <laughs> 
You realize under the old covenant, the armor wouldn't fit. It's prophetically stated in, 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 in David whenever he fought the giant. David tried to wear the armor of a king and it what? Didn't fit. Now, the armor of a king fits you. Why aren't we wearing it? Why do we put on bitterness and anger in a tense situation? See, because people will tell you, oh, you got to put the armor on every day. I, I, I got taught this in Sunday school. It's such a lie. <laughs> you get up in the morning, put your armor on. <laughs> that's not how it works. I wish that's how it worked. That I get up in the morning, I put my helmet on, my breastplate, and I'm good for the day. No, that's not how it works. You put your armor on in the tenseness of the situation as it comes. In other words, you get the choice in the pinch of the moment. Wearing righteousness happens when you choose to believe that he is righteous for you when the enemy is telling you by reality in your life that you're not righteous. That he's showing you all your sin and all your failures. In that moment, you choose how you get dressed. Do I believe all my unrighteousness that is there? Or do I believe that he made me righteous through his blood? Which breastplate am I going to put on? The one that tempts me to go back and try to be good for God because I know I'm not? Or the one that was good enough for God that is placed upon me by his merits and his work? That's how you put the armor on. It's moment by moment, situation by situation. Does this make sense to you? That you choose to put on shoes of peace instead of shoes of offense and chaos. That you choose to diffuse the argument instead of fuel it. How you walk every moment, every opportunity, every impact, every encounter with a human being that causes you stress and anxiety in that moment is the moment in which you truly decide what you wear. It's a choice. Put it on. Put on the whole armor of God that you might be able to withstand the wiles of the devil. A baby has to be brought up. This is why the Bible says, especially in the pastoral epistles, don't put people who are young and newly saved in authority. Why? Because they'll be taken out by the same devil they're trying to defeat. Does it mean they're powerless? No, it means they're immature. They have every capacity of DNA inside of them to be exactly like the risen Jesus. But if it took our Lord, our Messiah, 30 years of preparation to be able to defeat the greatest enemy that heaven ever had, what makes you think it's not going to take some degree of preparation for us to wear that armor as well? We do it exactly opposite. We send people to Bible school for three years, for 30 years of ministry. Jesus spent 30 years of preparation for three years of ministry. Most modern saints despise the preparatory process and they want immediate glory because we can't wait. And the word wait is, is found over 365 times in the Bible. Wait. Wait, wait on the Lord. Wait, 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 wait on him. Wait on him, wait on him, wait on him, wait on him. Why? Because in the waiting is the preparation. In the waiting is the death. 
in the waiting is every human itch that you have that begins to die. We have to be prepared for chapter six. When nobody wants to do the hard stuff because nobody praises you when you're washing your wife's feet. There's no crowd going, you got this, man. When your husband's being a real jerk, nobody's there going, man, you are totally exemplifying the fullness of Christ right now when you really are. But the devil's not gonna tell you that because he undermines the small. Why? Because that's where the power is. You remember a couple weeks ago, I preached on the power of the lamb. We haven't gotten that yet. We think the power is in the greatness and the big stuff and the conferences and the seminars. No, the power is when a man gets on his face between him and God and he lets the creator of the universe work his heart to such a degree that he's exposed and even somewhat ashamed until conviction comes and the shame leaves and he's lifted back up and made more into the image of Messiah as he gets up. People want the power and the anointing, but they don't realize that the power and the anointing were won by a million deaths that nobody else saw. Only a son can bear the armor of God. An imposter cannot. And a son knows the ways of his father. A son knows that he's got to go down before he can get up. A son knows he's got to serve before he can rule. A son knows the power of humility. A son knows the command of his father to cover a multitude of sins. Knowledge will tell you to expose. Love will tell you to cover. It's so funny. Whenever it's somebody else's sin, we want to expose. But when it's ours, we want it covered. That's how carnal we are. We're not even willing to do unto others. As soon as someone hurts us, we want to to hurt back. If you don't think that's true, just wait. A circumstance will come where pain will come to you and you will be tested. You may be doing okay in your season, but the greatest enemy to the season you're going to is the one you're in. Because if you're strong now, God's gonna eventually place you in another place of weakness so that way you can trust him because everything has to be done by faith. Dependency will be the thing that marks the life of a son. I remember in Ephesians 4, when we read this, Paul is saying, put on the armor of God. But in Ephesians 4, verse 22, he says, put off. In other words, take off concerning the former conversation of your old man. Take that out of your life. Don't even speak that way. Don't live that way. Don't think that way. Don't talk that way. Take that off. Don't clothe yourself in what you were. Take off the corrupt, the corruption according to deceitful lusts. Be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Verse 24, put on the new man. 
wait a minute, these are saved people. I thought they already knew. You have to put it on and choose it every day of your life. I choose to be new today because every day there's an opportunity for you to feel and to get depressed and to get offended and to get despair and discouraged. Every day there's an opportunity for you to judge and complain and be bitter or be thankful and be grateful to God. Put on the new man. Well, I thought we did that at salvation. No, we do that every day. Paul says, I die to myself every single day. In this sense, I like to refer to salvation as a process so much more than an event. Put away, put off, he says, lying. Don't wear the robe of lying. You know why people lie? Because they're afraid. I guarantee you, if you think about the times that you've lied in your life, nine times out of 10, you lied because you were afraid. You probably did something wrong, didn't want to be caught. You didn't want to do the thing that you did that was wrong, but you did it anyway. So you tried to cover it up because you were afraid. The Bible says there's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. If you see lying in your life, you'll see an incomplete love in your life. He says, put away lying. So to put away lying, what do we have to put on? Love. You can't wear the garment of the flesh and the garment of God at the same time. They will pollute one another. This is why the Bible says that you should hate the garment that's spotted with the flesh. Jesus is coming back for a bride without a wrinkle. Why? Because the flesh, this robe that we wear of life and sin, spots, stains, wrinkles, destroys the garment of, of God. What we choose to wear determines our ability and our success in all spiritual warfare. If you show up dressed like Jesus, demons will bow to you. They just will. But if you show up dressed like them, anger and bitterness and vileness and wrath and sexual impurity and judgment and offense and unbelief, and they're not going to move out of your way. They will challenge you. Even by their very nature, their job is to rebel against you. They're rebels. That's what they are. He says, put away these things. Speak truth with your neighbor, with your, your parishioners, with your people. Because we're members of one another. Be angry. Don't sin. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath. Don't give place to the devil. I'll get into that more when we talk about the wiles of the devil the next time I speak. Because you need to know his tricks. Paul says we're not ignorant of his devices. We don't need to know the name of every demon to cast it out. That's not what it's talking about. That's garbage. People say, well, Jesus asked. Do you know why Jesus asked, in my opinion, the name of that demon? He did it twice. Why did he ask? Because he needed to know the name to cast it out? No, I believe he was taking a tally. It's like when you walk up to some guy on the street and you know you're about to beat the snot out of him. You're like, what's your name? I'm going to remember you on the final day to give you a double judgment. Tell me what your name is. 
I believe he was so angry at that demon for what it did to that kid and to those people that he said, I'm going to take a tally of you and I'm going to remember you. And when the final day comes, you're going to get something way worse than everybody else. I want to know who you are, that you think you can defy God and his people. That's my opinion. Colossians 3, 5, kill therefore your members which are upon the earth, this body, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, covetousness, which is idolatry. For these things, the wrath of God comes upon the children of disobedience. These things you walked in in the times past when you lived in them, but now what? He says, put off, take off. Take off of, the, of your life, off your body, these things. Take off anger, take off wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old man and his works. Do you see that you have the ability as a son of God to begin to live and dress and robe yourself in the same old lifestyle that you lived before as a new species? which is the ultimate act of rebellion against God. To take the pure image of Jesus Christ himself that has been placed inside of you and dress him like the old man that Jesus crucified. Does this make sense to you? This is a choice. Paul's telling the Colossians here, take it off your life because you have the power to take that stuff off. You think, oh, the devil's just messing with me. No, you're allowing that stuff into your life. Take it off and he won't mess with you. Oh, he'll still try to get into your head, but guess what? That's why you have a... <laughs> See, God's made provision for everything that comes against you. He says, put, a call, put, a, put off the old man in his conversation, his thoughts, his ways. Why? Because when you wear the old man's thinking, all you're going to begin to do is begin to tear down yourself and begin to tear down everybody around you. Because the old man only has one ability, and that's to operate in knowledge of good and evil. I know immediately when I meet people where they're at after I hear them talk for a while because if their minds and hearts and conversations end up going to a place of seeing sin over and over and over again and wrong and I see that people come into churches all the time, the first thing they do in the church is they start picking everything apart and judging everything and trying to figure it and it's because they're drunk on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If Jesus ate from that tree and came down here and treated us the way we treat other people, he would look at us and said, you're all wrong. You're all a bunch of hypocrites, thieves, and liars. I'm not having nothing to do with y'all. I'm not stepping foot in that church because they're all hypocrites. <laughs> I'm so glad Jesus isn't like me. He walked into a whole world full of hypocrites and said, I know you're all wrong, but I'm here to fix it. <laughs> See, if you were as spiritual as you think you were, you wouldn't see what's wrong in the church. You'd see, I can fix that. I can heal that one. Because I see that the things I see that sin in their life come from that wound, and that wound's hiding behind all the pain and the masks. And if I can just get a relationship with that person, I can get in there and I can heal that wound. See, that's how you beat a principality, one person at a time. 
And you gain their heart the same way Jesus gained yours. And then pretty soon you gain enough of them to where you start impacting the culture. And now you put the peer pressure on the society to be holy because everybody else is, is looking at you. And they're like, oh man, I guess we got to go that way now because I'm going to feel real awkward if I act differently. You guys have seen it. Even some of you have done it in your work where, where you don't tolerate swearing. And people, you know, people know that, you know, you're a believer. And they come up, they're like, oh, I'm so sorry. You know what you've done? You've created spiritual peer pressure. You're changing the environment. You're taking authority. Does this make sense? <clears throat> Put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge. Isn't that interesting that Paul says this? He's re- the new man is renewed in knowledge. The old man can't handle knowledge. The old man only operates in the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The new man knows how to handle knowledge. You know how the new man handles knowledge? Mercy, love, forgiveness, grace, service. It sees the evil. Oh, it, it sees it. But it sees the pearl that's buried in the earth. Digging through people's lives gets dirty and messy. But in in each and every one of us, there's a pearl. And if you don't train your eyes to see it, the only thing you're going to see is what's wrong in people. And guess what? Even the devil can do that. And I kind of want to be a little bit better than him. (laughs) It's not prophetic to be able to see what's wrong. I see so many prophets and all they want to do is tell you what's wrong. You know, every prophet in the Old Testament, some way through their journey, God switched everything and made them begin to prophesy restoration. Because if all you can see are the dry bones and you can't see the army, then you're not a prophet. You're just an accuser. Colossians 3.11 this is the next verse down. There's no Jew or Greek in this new man that's put on, that's, that's according to knowledge. He says, there's no barbarian or Scythian, no bond nor free, but Christ is all in all. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, bowels of mercies. Put on mercy in your inner man. Kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another. In other words, bearing with one. You know how hard it is to bear with somebody? That means you're, you're taking the load. They're causing you duress. But you don't blame them for it. You love them so much, you're like, I'm willing to carry it. As soon as somebody starts putting crap on us, we want to start blaming them. Whenever that was actually an opportunity from your father to act like the son. Put these things on. Don't quarrel against anyone Forgive them as Christ forgave you. Above all these things, put on, put on, dress yourself in love, which is the bond of perfection. Let the peace of God rule in your heart because you're one body and be thankful. Does this make sense? There are certain things in our life that have to be taken off before you can put on the armor of God. That's my point. People think, oh, I'm just going to put on the armor of God when you're walking in chaos and rebellion and disobedience and treating your wife poorly. Do you realize that if you treat your wife bad, God won't hear your prayer? 
Oh, brother, I'm praying. You might as well stop. I'm serious. If you're not treating your wife right, you might as well quit praying. God's not going to hear you. Your prayers will be hindered. And if God hinders your prayers, ain't none of that getting through. Why? Because the heavens are a legal system. Thank God we have an advocate. Thank God if we get involved in the wrong legality, we can say, Father, forgive me. And instantly we come right back into right relationship with Jesus, right where we left off. The only thing we wasted was time. And even then he can redeem that if you let him. You have hope. You have hope. So many people can't wear the armor of God because they're already clothed with the garment of the flesh. Matthew 9, 16, Jesus says, no man puts a new piece of cloth on an old garment. In other words, what he's saying is that the, uh, the new spirit that these disciples are about to walk in, can't hand, they can't handle it. They're still in the old nature. If I gave them what you're asking me to give them, it would destroy them. I have to completely make them into a new wineskin before the new wine can be poured in. In other words, it takes the new man to operate the new life. The old wineskin cannot operate under the spiritual warfare that Ephesians 6 commands. If you try to pour spiritual warfare in the old wineskin, the wineskin will break. You say, well, I can't live that perfectly. That's why you have the blood. Use it every day. <laughs> you have the blood. It constantly flows from the throne of God. So many, you know what our modern idea of Christianity is? Is to, li is to live life in such a way as to never use the blood. It's there. He wants us to use it. And if you think you're going to get to the point in your life where you're never going to be able to use it again because you're so pure and holy, you're already wrong. <laughs> use the blood. Cover yourself in the blood. Let those sins be cast as far as the east is from the west, even if you just committed them three seconds ago. <laughs> They're gone. The devil will tell you, you just did that. Nope. No, my father exists outside of eternity. I'm already seated at the right hand of my, of my God. That's a long time ago. And guess what? My daddy doesn't even remember. So I'm good. Does this make sense to you? I'm going to read Jude 1, uh, uh, Jude one twenty. There's only one chapter. Verse 20, it says, but you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God. That's your job. <laughs> you gotta keep yourself in the love of God. So much of what we think God's job is, is, is really ours. Keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of Jesus under the eternal life. You should be looking for mercy from God, not judgment. You train yourself to look for the mercy of God in your life, over your marriage, your finances. And some have compassion making a difference in others. Listen to this, save them with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating the garment that is destroyed or spotted and wrinkled by the flesh. In other words, Jude is equating here those people who have spotted garments as people who live in carnality. 
save them from the fire that they're going towards. These people had a, spirit, a pure spiritual garment and it got defiled. And he says, you need to save them. You need to pull them away from that flame. Does this make sense? Paul, earlier, we went through it in Ephesians 5 and right in the middle of the marriage chapter, it says in verse 27, so that Jesus might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing so that she would be holy and without blemish. without blemish. This is why we have to be trained and raised up. This is why it takes time for people to finally get to the place where they can see. For some of you, what I'm saying seems so unreachable because you haven't grown up yet. But if you start developing your mind now that I'm being prepared for a day and a time that's coming and there's never a day in my life that's wasted and everything that happened and has happened and is happening to me is sent from my father to prepare me for this time in which I will be able to take out his greatest enemy, then no day you ever live is a waste. It's you're prepared. You're being prepared to hold that armor. How? By choosing not to wear the other stuff. When the Holy Spirit comes and says, you shouldn't feel that way, you shouldn't think that way, it's not a condemnation. It's a conviction to take that thing off so that you can put on what is really yours. The new life gives us access to the new mind. But the mind has to be renewed. You have the personal responsibility to begin to look at your life differently. That I am not under the shadow of, of accusation, but I, am, I live under the shadow of his wings, which are mercy. And if you train yourself to see that, then the voice of accusation begins to lose power over your life. And as the voice of accusation begins to lose power over your life, guess what? you're now more available to show mercy to those who need it. You're not blinded by your own pain. You can actually see somebody else's. And you realize that all your preparation was for someone else. And when you see that person come to Christ and bow the knee, you think, oh my God, it was all worth it. Are you following what I'm saying? See, in Acts chapter two, they had to be endued with power, but there was a preparatory waiting and prayer that had to come before that. Acts chapter two didn't happen until after Matthew 27 did. There had to be a death in order to bring a new life. And the same thing happens in our life. Every time you choose to die, the Holy Spirit brings a new opportunity for life inside of you to be like Christ. You put off the old man and you put on the new one. When the enemy comes and accuses you that your righteousness isn't good enough, what he's asking you to do is trade breastplates. And if you do, then guess what? That thing that's sitting over your heart will begin to condemn your heart. And when you take Christ's righteousness, you realize, there's, I can't do anything. But just receive what you've given me. And he says, Exactly. God's goal is to get you to look like his son. Not just to be born into the image of, 
but to grow up into the maturity of. Salvation's just the beginning. I want you to understand this. We'll get into this next time I speak on this, but deception is the only power the enemy has. I used to wonder like when the Bible said that when in, in, in Revelation that the people are gonna see him thrown into the pit and the whole world's gonna wonder and go, this is the guy that deceived the nations. I really think that the devil's a pretty weak being. His power though lies in his, his ability to persuade He's called the deceiver for a reason. So basically, he's a con man. He's a grifter. He has no authority. It's been stripped. So his job is to come into your life and try to convince you to give him your bank account because he doesn't have any. To give him your mind and your heart and your family by trading all the value you have with bitterness and anger and hatred and oppression and judgment. Let me say it this way. You as a believer do not have enough spiritual currency to afford the weight of offense and bitterness. Those things will drain you dry. When it says guard your heart, it's not talking about keeping everybody out. It's talking about taking hold of the value you have and not giving it to the devil by offering the treasure of your heart to bitterness and offense and anger and unforgiveness. The only thing the devil has is a very weak moment of explosive emotion in the center of controversy. Just long enough to get you to feel something to agree with something that's ultimately going to kill. Mature people, they don't react, they respond. As I've gotten older, I learned that when something flashes me and hurts me and gets on my family or somebody accuses me, I just stop immediately and I wait. You know what I'm waiting on? The Lord? No, I'm not waiting on the Lord. I'm waiting on the storm to pass. Because when the storm passes, the emotions go away, and then I begin to see that the mind of Christ is able to work. Because emotions, all they are, are storms. If you had not figured that out yet, I'm, let me give you a hint. Emotions are storms. You will never stop them from coming. You just have to wait long enough until they pass and then you feel differently about it when the emotions leave. So I wait. Anytime I get, I'm like, okay. I'm gonna wait. Usually I'll wait till the next day. Two days later, three days later and all of a sudden, I'm not near as concerned about it. And all of a sudden, I can come to this place where I say, okay, Father, forgive them because they really don't know what they're saying. Because if they did, they wouldn't accuse one of their own. So you gotta understand, deception can't be removed. It can only be stood against. You need the armor to stand against deception. And then once you get dressed, what's your job? 
we'll get there. It's to stand. You'd think that we just, you know, ah. no, he's just like, you stay right there. You stay right there at the place of Bethany in your life and you hold that line. Are you following me? Okay, I'll try to close. Revelation 3. Jesus says to the church of Laodicea, because you say I am rich and increase with goods and have need of nothing and know, and you don't know that you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. So you have a people here that Jesus is addressing that is the church. They think in their mind, catch this now, this if we were in that church, we would be deceived. We would think we're good. Jesus would know we're not. This is what's so dangerous about deception. The devil's the deceiver, right? Here's what's dangerous about deception. Nobody ever thinks they are. Not a person in here thinks they're deceived. Not a person in here thinks that they're the five foolish virgins. Everybody in here thinks you're the five wise. Everybody in here thinks it's the other church that's deceived. This is why we need community. Because community will point out where you are wearing the armor of the accuser. And if you have pride, you won't listen and you'll be exposed. This is why Paul tells Titus, he says, mark those that cause division amongst you and get them out of the church. Why? Because division is the heart of the accuser. But these people who are causing division actually think they're doing it on the grounds of truth. See, but they haven't read their Bible. Jesus doesn't divide his own house. Oh, the Bible says he said he didn't come to bring peace, but the sword. If you read the context, he's talking about believers and unbelievers. Jesus can't oppose himself. And he, out of his own mouth, said, a house divided cannot stand. So if Jesus is gonna divide his own house through his truth, then his house can't stand. And he won't do that. In fact, all of the contextual New Testament epistles point to the exact opposite, that God doesn't want his house divided. But people who are deceived will divide God's house thinking they're doing it in truth. So Jesus tells this church, he says, you don't think, you think you're rich, you think you're increased with goods, you think that you can see. He says, I'm telling you, you're wretched, you're miserable, you're poor, you're blind and you're naked. I'm telling you, buy from me gold tried in the fire that you may be rich, white raiment that you may be clothed so that the shame of your nakedness does not appear. Anoint your eyes with eye salve that you might be able to see. What does that mean? Some people think that gold in the Bible is the character of God. And this is why the Bible states that we've got to be purified and get the dross out of our lives so that all we're left with is the character and the nature of Messiah. So the gold is what we're supposed to be clothed with, which actually goes back to the glory of God. But gold has to be tried in the fire. And when it's tried in the fire, guess what comes out? all the stuff you're ashamed of. And that's when the enemy starts accusing you. But he 
He doesn't want you to understand that this is part of the process. He wants you to identify with the junk and say that you're the dross when God really knows you're the gold. But if you believe that you're the dross, guess what? It has power in your life. In Song of Solomon, it says that the beloved refers to her lover's head, arms, and feet being made of gold. In other words, Jesus, the beloved, his head, his arms, and his feet are made of gold. Gold was the covering of the ark of God, true, true or not. The ark of God is where the presence of the Lord housed himself, yes? Where does the presence of the Lord house himself now? What are we supposed to be clothed with? The gold of God, the character of God, the righteousness of God, the clothing of God, the glory of God. But that's got to be purified, doesn't it? The process is not your problem. That's the best thing that could be happening to you. The problem is you're not seeing yourself as already a finished work. The golden lampstands in Revelation that Jesus walks amongst. What are the golden lampstands in that context? What are they? It's the church. You with me? Job declared this in Job 23 and in Jeremiah 9. He says, when he tests me, I will come out as pure gold. You can't wear both things. Paul says in Corinthians, he says, you can't sit and eat from the cup of devils and drink from the cup of devils and the cup of the Lord at the same time. You gotta choose. Guys, it's really simple. All the chaos and all the stuff and all the stuff that's going on in your life, you're one simple choice away from looking exactly like Jesus. You let go of the bitterness and the pain and the rejection and the fear and the torment and the trial and the unforgiveness and you just say, no, I'm tired of wearing that garbage. I'm gonna put on the new man that's clothed in righteousness. I'm gonna put on the things the Lord has given me in my life. I'm gonna put on the mind of Christ and I'm gonna grow up into the, the stature of my father. And that every difficulty that comes my way is only given to me as an opportunity to be just like Jesus. How can the devil win if you have that mentality? Well, he can take things from me, probably stuff you don't need anyway, probably stuff you're gonna lose anyway. You can stand with me. Thank you for your patience. You got to bear with me. I've had two weeks without preaching, so I had to get it all out. Hallelujah. I'm encouraging you, put off the accusation that you're not good enough, that you're a sinner, that you're this, that you're that, and put on what Messiah Jesus gave you to wear. His righteousness, his glory, his splendor, his magnificence, his call, his honor, his power over your life. And when the process of purification of the gold that he's placed in your life comes, rejoice. Be thankful. 
you're in the fire. That's a good place to be. You know, I heard somebody say one time, he said, uh, you know, he said, the Bible says that God loved Jacob and hated Esau. And it's hard for us to understand that, but the idea is this, is that if you look at Jacob's life, it was full of trouble and discipline and correction over and over and over and over and over again. And if you look at Esau's life, God never corrected him, never chastised him, gave him everything he wanted. He was increased with wealth and riches and prosperity. But never once did God intervene and purify him. Do you want the love of God in your life? He will treat you like Jacob if you. Because the Bible says he, he disciplines and chastens everyone he loves. If you're in the fire, that's what I'm saying. If you're in the fire, you can get real happy real fast. Why? That's how you know he loves you. <laughs> that's how you know he loves you. Father, we thank you. We don't deserve you but we're so grateful you chose us. May every heart and mind here bow before your magnificence in everyday life. Renew their minds. Teach them your ways. Heal them. Show them the power of the Lamb of God. We honor you. May this word be held in their hearts even when they forget it. Let it bring forth a harvest that is worthy of the name Jesus Christ of Nazareth. In your name we ask these things. Amen.